every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. Welcome to Money Talk for the final day of this week, Friday the 4th of August. There are several places you can find this show. Look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify, where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore now. You can go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll also find my daily newsletter. And on Facebook, I'm Peter Lewis Money Talk, and on Twitter, at MoneyTalkR3. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Bank of England has raised interest rates for the 14th time in a row to the highest level since April 2008 as the central bank continues its battle to control stubbornly high price rises. The BOE's Monetary Policy Committee voted by 6 to 3 on Thursday to raise interest rates by 25 basis points to 5.25% and it warned that borrowing costs are likely to remain elevated despite slowing inflation. China's service sector activity expanded at a stronger pace in July. The Kaishin China General Services PMI unexpectedly rose to 54.1 in July from June's five-month low of 53.9 and exceeding forecasts. The reading pointed to the seventh straight month of expansion in services activity, supported by a faster rise in new orders, which encouraged firms to expand their payroll numbers at the fastest pace in four months. And employment climbed for the sixth consecutive month. However, business sentiment weakened to an eight-month low amid concerns about the sustainability of global economic growth. Hong Kong's business activity fell into contraction territory for the first time in 2023. The S&P Global Hong Kong PMI unexpectedly declined to 49.4 in July from 50.3 in June and below forecasts. The latest reading pointed to the first contraction in the private sector since last December due to a renewed decline in new orders and output. Sentiment deteriorated to an eight-month low. India has abruptly restricted the import of personal computers, including laptops and tablets, as the country works to boost local electronics manufacturing. India's Ministry of Commerce and Industry said Thursday that imports of laptops and other personal computing devices would now require permits, making the import process far more onerous. And the move could hit hard the likes of Apple, Dell and Samsung and force them to boost local manufacturing. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Wall Street Thursday, the S&P 500 closed lower for a third day as rising bond yields pressured stocks. The S&P 500 was down a third of a percent at 4,502 after its biggest one-day drop on Wednesday since April. The Dow lost 67 points or 0.2% to end at 35,216. The Nasdaq Composite inched down 0.1% to 13,960. After the bell, Apple reported a surprising profit rise boosted by its services division. Revenues fell 1% year-on-year to $81.8 billion. That's a third straight fall, but it was ahead of forecasts at $81.7 billion. However, net profits rose 2.3% to $19.9 billion, US dollars, well ahead of Wall Street estimates that they would slip 3.6%. 
revenues from Apple's services division, which includes App Store sales, iCloud and Apple Music, rose 8% from a year ago to a record high of $21.2 billion, and revenue in the greater China region grew by 7.9% to $15.8 billion, which offset a 5.6% decline in the Americas. Shares of Apple fell 2.2% in after-hours trading. Also after the bell, Amazon reported sales growth of 11% and issued optimistic guidance, stronger-than-expected online sales, and cost-cutting boosted Amazon's profit margins and contributed to after-tax earnings that were nearly double expectations. Shares of Amazon have surged 8% in after-hours trading. Yields on long-dated U.S. Treasuries climbed to a nine-month high, extending a rise that began on Wednesday after a flurry of events, including the U.S. government lifting its issuance targets for the coming quarter, strong private payrolls data, and Fitch's unexpected downgrade on Tuesday of Washington's credit rating. The 10-year Treasury yield climbed 11 basis points to 4.19%. Piling further pressure on Treasuries, hedge fund manager Bill Ackman said he was shorting US 30-year debt, citing large deficits as far as the eye can see. The yield on the 30-year bond jumped 14 basis points to 4.31%. Hong Kong stocks declined for the third straight session, moving further away from a near three-month peak hit on Monday. The Hang Seng Index dropped uh, 97 points, that's half a percent, to 19,421, following a 2.5% slump on Wednesday. The tech index was up 0.4%, but shares of Chinese technology stocks were under pressure on Wednesday after regulators in China proposed limits on the use of smartphones for miners. Shares of JD.com, Baidu and Alibaba fell between around 1-2%. to The Shanghai Composite Index bucked the downward trend, rising 0.6% to 3,280. And futures markets are predicting a big jump for the Hang Seng at the open of about 222 points. That's 1.1%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Welcome our guests. As always on a Friday morning, I can see sitting here in the studio, Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. I know it's the weekend when I see you, Francis. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. And also with us is David Friedland, who's Managing Director of Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. Always good to see you, David. Thank you and good morning. Uh, Let's start in the UK for a change. The Bank of England, it's raised interest rates for the 14th time in a row to the highest level since April 2008. As the central bank continues its battle to control stubbornly high price rises, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee voted by 6 to 3 on Thursday to raise interest rates by 25 basis points to 5.25% and warned that borrowing costs are likely to remain elevated despite slowing inflation. And Bank of England Governor Andrew Bay emphasised that interest rates would need to stay at high levels, saying that in order to get inflation back to target, we're going to have to keep this stance of policy. And the bank's updated forecast suggests that it will take until mid-2025 for inflation to fall to the Bank of England's 2% target. And Francis, we've had a lot of um, decisions from the major central banks the last couple of weeks, the Fed, the Bank of Japan, the ECB, the Reserve Mm -hmm. Bank of Australia. Probably fair to say, isn't it, that the Bank of England England is in the biggest hole out of them all. Yeah, definitely. I think that the problem is that the new, uh, inflation in the 
you in UK has not come under control, unlike America or China, and uh, they will have to raise interest rate again to uh, to tame inflation. But at the same time. Uh, they are bringing hardship to the British people <laughs> and then uh, uh, the standard of living of British people are falling because of the high interest rate and the high inflation. And it, it is uh, a pretty sad thing and you see so many strikes and uh, that is really one of the results of high interest rates and high inflation. Why hasn't the Bank of England got inflation under control? Because it's probably fair to say that in the US they have, haven't they? The Fed has done it. The Reserve Bank of Australia, you could probably say, is on top of it. Not the Bank of England. Why not? Well, you can blame it on Brexit, part of it anyway, because of Brexit, that uh, all the food items have become more expensive, and then you add that to uh, the uh, to the Russian inf- invasion of Ukraine, and everything's gone up and then it's very, very difficult to control prices now. Mm. David, it's probably fair to say, isn't it, that um, in, in the UK, things are looking much more difficult than in the US and the rest of Europe. It certainly seems that way. And I think Francis has it right. It, it's um, Brexit is, it, it, it's, you're going to see the ramifications of Brexit going on for years and years. Um, it's not an open border anymore. They have to bring everything in. There's strikes everywhere. It's hard to find people to employ, and that's going to drive wage inflation. And uh, it's not going to help. Uh, it just takes a long time to get under control. And, and it seems inflation, even Andrew Bailey admits it, inflation has sort of become embedded in the system now, hasn't it? Because people are expecting higher wages to deal with higher food and energy prices, and it becomes a sort of vicious circle, which central banks are always desperate to avoid. They don't want inflation to become embedded in the system. But in the UK, that seems to be what has, what's happened. Yeah, well, the psychological, you can't discount the psychological aspect. If people think that prices are going to go up, they need a higher wage, and it's just a vicious cycle, and they have to get that under control. Um, with the, um, I do think that the, the rates, you know, what I'm reading is maybe one or two more rates for now because the, the um, it does, the, especially with housing, there's a lag effect um, because the way the UK mortgages are, where um, I think it, it's it, the typical mortgage is a fixed rate for two to five years, and then they go to um, a rate around the, the um, the current market mm. so that that's going to taper off and can, can, can constrict the economy a little bit and it'll slowly come in and hopefully drive things down a bit more and get things under control I mean, this is a big difference, isn't it, between the UK and the US. In the US, you could go and fix your mortgage for 30 years, whereas in the UK, people are really now starting to notice the costs of their mortgages going up and it's having a real hit on their incomes. Yeah, it's a big effect and, um, you know, in the US... I think you've had so much time um, to see the rates going up. Well, first of all, the 10-year rate's been very stable till recently. So a lot of people have already refinanced their mortgage for 30 years. Mm. So they're locked in, and you're not going to see as big of an impact on, on the, the current market. Obviously, new housing will be impacted as, as the longer-term rates go up. Um, and then the longer-term rates will impact the mortgage rates. In the U.K., it's a shorter term. You'll see it real real time. Mm. Is the Bank of England being too timid, though? I know it doesn't want to tip the economy into recession, but nevertheless, headline inflation is 7.9%. The core is 6.9%, but interest rates 5.25%, still negative. Is, is the Bank of England, you, you would think really they should have raised rates by at least 50 basis points here to, to try and get things, to get on top of things. 
you know, I, I like the sledgehammer <laughs> approach. Just get it done, especially that's that's how you knocked you got knock, always knock the market into submission. Mm. <laughs> what we're going to do? We're going to be there. Yeah. Um, but they're just taking a really slow approach. It's it's, um, mm. it's like a slow drip. Mm. Francis, is this what stagflation looks like? Well, are we seeing that in the UK? Yeah, I think it's, it's something like um, the 1970s and the Edward Heave, I think it was. You had, 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 then was a stag inflation that was caused by high oil prices. Now, mm. this time it's, uh, it's both uh, energy prices and food prices. So you have uh, a double whammy of food and energy, and that is really a tough act to uh, control. It took Mar- I, I remember Edward Heath. I remember Howard Wilson as well, UK Prime Minister. It took <laughs> Margaret Thatcher really, didn't it, to get things under control and to bring inflation down. With and she did it a series of very sharp interest rate rises. Yeah, and she also uh, broke the unions. Yes, which uh, <laughs> sort of well, some people would say that's a bad thing, but others would say that sort of freed up the uh, the labour market and and the economy. Mm-hmm. But I, in my mind, though, there is no doubt that the best days for the UK economy came after 1972 when the UK joined the European Union. And and it's no coincidence that that period of really strong growth in the UK came at the same time that it was in the European Union. So to to your point, David, it does seem, doesn't it, now we've had several years to assess it, Brexit has made a big impact. Yeah, and, and, um, you know... You always look back and say, yeah, I told you so. I knew it was going to happen. But, but <laughs> I, I think that's how the world works. Look, look at America right now. You, you, you're, you're in a you're in a, The politics are so divisive in the States. It's tearing the place apart. You're going to look back in, in history and say, what happened? And I think mm. you're having something similar here where you had a good thing. The economies were doing so well. It wasn't perfect. And I think they could have done something better. Mm. Well, one of the things you're going to look back on in in the U.S. and say what happened is is Fitch downgraded the U.S. credit rating by one notch from AAA well, to AA+. Do you, do you think it's right, Francis? Was it the of right course, decision? Of course, of course. They are, they are running their deficits at one trillion U.S. dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And and then in, uh, last year, interest rate was almost 0.25. Now the interest rate is 5.5. They are paying on thirty billion trillion in U.S. dollar debt. They are paying one point five trillion mm. U.S. dollars a year on interest alone. That that is a, that is really a big chunk of the uh, educational welfare program. But debt to GDP, we had a guest on the program yesterday who says that's a meaningless ratio, but nevertheless, debt to GDP in the US is coming down, isn't it? So although in the longer term, it's going to go up to about 114% at the moment over the last couple of years, it's been coming down. So why has Fitch only done this now um, (laughs) and not before? Uh, well, I, I, I think the, pro- the, the, the problem is interest rates r- uh, have risen so much, I think, by 11 times. Then, then when, you, when you have interest rates, uh, interest expense going up to $1 trillion US dollars a year, that really raises a red flag. Hmm. And then you look at uh, uh, Biden. He's trying to spend... Yeah. With All subsidies for industries. Like the, and, like the infl- uh, uh, Inflation Act. Uh, inflation like Reduction Act. Reduction Act. Which doesn't actually reduce inflation. Yeah, it's actually almost one trillion US dollars of subsidies to the yes. businesses. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, David, what do you think? Was this the right thing to do? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I always thought, what, what's the purpose of a debt rating? It, it's the ability to pay. Mm. So is the U.S. going to default? I don't think so. No. And <laughs> comparing this, you know, should U.S. be a lower rating than other countries with a AAA? I put, push to shove, I put my money in the States. Um, I do think it does signal, for the, um, you know, for the longest time we've had, it's, it's actually not been a bad situation where you get short, short-term bills, um, you get a nice yield, Long term, mm. you can play the curve where you know the longer term duration was a lower yield. It's good for the housing market, long term investment, the stock market. But I guess this is signaling that long term rates are here to stay, which is kind of obvious. So I think they're kind of they're, they're putting something out there. It's like yeah, we all know that the debt the debt has to be financed, but end of the day, everyone keeps financing it. So I, I don't think it was necessary. Mm, because in the, the U.S.'s case, it can fund in its own currency. It can print U.S. dollars as much as it wants and bu- issue treasury bonds to fund that deficit as long as they don't tie themselves in knots over the, the debt ceiling like they seem to do every now and then. But in effect, the U.S. dollar is in a unique position, isn't it, having the world's reserve currency? Yeah, but, it, you know, we all, we all have seen that part of, part of the inflation – the problems they have with inflation was printing too much money and throwing too much mm. money to save the economy with COVID <laughs> and all that. So you, you can't just do that. And then, you know, U.S. can't become Zimbabwe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other, but then, then in that case, maybe Fitch has done us a favor by actually getting people to start focusing on these deficits yeah. and how much, as Francis, as you say, how much it's costing to service uh, that deficit, which has sort of been there in the background, hasn't it? But people have sort of ignored it. Now suddenly the markets are looking at this much more closely. Yeah, when you're paying, when trillion US dollars a year, that's a big chunk of it, and you have every tough act to balance the budget. You have, the the budget deficit would have, would go up to two trillion US dollars very soon if if you don't control it. If uh, if uh, you US uh, uh, budget situation uh, is like uh, Argentina or Brazil. <laughs> Right. Wow. <laughs> or Turkey, then wow, then yes. then everybody in the world will lose, and China and Japan will lose the most. Yeah, so I, I'd say I don't think the rating itself is as important, but it's important. Think of it as a smack in the face, wake yeah. up call. You don't buy bonds, treasury bonds for their rating, yeah. do you? Basically, <laughs> but 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 so, but lowering the rating, wow, that's an embarrassment. We need to do something. So hopefully, it's a wake up call to to get some of the spending under control. Think long term, a little bit better. Um, yeah. It's a crazy world right now. Yeah. What do you make of the market reaction to this? I think maybe the biggest reaction we've seen is actually in the treasury market, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. long-term yields have now jumped. The 10-year the yield is at 4.19%. Um, so it's at a nine-month high. But I think the significance of this now is that the 10-year now seems to be consistently above 4%, which is the first time we've seen that since the global uh, financial crisis. So there is now a significant change, isn't there, in the Treasury market, mm-hmm. uh, partly in reaction to this, but also there, there have been other things going on as well. We had that strong ADP jobs report. We've got uh, the Treasury saying they're going to have to issue a lot more bonds to finance the deficit. Mm-hmm. But it does seem to be a game changer for the treasury markets. Uh, yeah, definitely. With uh, uh, long term, you're going up so so much, and and if we have ramifications uh, all over the economy, you have thirty year mortgages rising to a 
4.31% for 30-year yeah, bonds. Yeah, that's right. Not too long ago, it was something like 3 point something. So, uh, well, people will suffer because they have to pay much more in interest rates, just like Hong Kong. And uh, we are paying double uh, the interest mm. uh, uh, we, ha- we, we, we paid uh, last year already. David, this is a game changer, do you think, for, for bonds? I, I, I just, you look back and say, if you, in hindsight, what an easy trade. I mean, <laughs> it's, long-term yields have been very low. Yep. And we know this deficit's out there. It's not going away. It's only increasing. You have to finance it. How do you do that? It's long-term. So, you, you know, basically they've been rolling the short-term debt, but it was inevitable that this was going to happen. So I, I think um, it's kind of, you know, it's reality. And I think they're here to stay for a while until the deficits get under control. It's tempting, though, isn't it, to lock these in when you've got yields of 4.2% and what the dividend yield on the S&P 500? Is it about 1%, I think, at the moment? <laughs> it's like, it sort of becomes tempting, doesn't it, to think, you know, maybe this is uh, you know, time to lock these rates in. If they get inflation under control, because you can net, net, you know, it's a net interest, uh, real interest rates that matter. Mm. But... Um, it's tempting to lock in, but so it was 3% um, a few yeah, months ago. So I, I think you have to see where it stabilizes and where it goes. But, you know, it, it, you will see some longer-term investment. You'll see a shift from the short-term to the long-term. I, you know, Warren Buffett was coming out. He's, he's doing, what, $10 billion in, in, in T-bills a month. Maybe he starts shifting to the longer curve. I have no idea. Mm. But that, that yield curve now is starting to steepen, isn't it? Oh, actually, it's still inverted, but it's now becoming less um, inverted these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we've got important uh, jobs data. To, oh, this is another element to this, isn't it? Because yeah, we had the ADP jobs data yeah. on Wednesday, which was surprisingly strong. We've got mm-hmm. the official jobs reports from the US government tomorrow, expecting about 200,000 jobs to be made. But the, the real story here has been just how strong the US jobs market has been hasn't it? It's really sort of almost been immune to, to rising interest rates. Yeah, I think uh, that's because the uh, I, I think the big companies, the big techs in the U.S. are doing quite well. Uh, you lo- look at the results announced by uh, Amazon and Apple, the two biggest ones, and they, they show quite strong re- uh, resilience mm. uh, amid it actually a downturn in manufacturing. Uh, people are buying less. Uh, it shows in, in in the sales figure, but they managed to uh, uh, earn back something else uh, in services income. So they are doing quite well. I think uh, people, uh, economists, are over overly timid in their forecasting recession in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, if you look at those Apple results, one thing it did highlight was just how important China is yeah. uh, to its earnings. So you can see why they're investing so much and so re- reluctant to, to follow this de-risking, as the U.S. calls it. Uh, well, Apple and Tesla, these are the two companies who will never leave China. <laughs> mm. well, what do you make of the mar- stock market reaction, David? I mean, we're, we're sort of seeing the stocks now starting to be pressurized by these bond yields, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it, it's the markets have had a. You know, we sat back here six months ago where everyone was forecasting a so so year, and here we are. The markets are up. It's been a solid year. Well, it's been concentrated in, in a couple of the tech stocks and a, and a short number of names, but generally the markets have been strong, and everyone's. 
is it getting too hot, too heavy? Possibly. So this could signal mm-hmm. a little bit of a sell-off, and, and which is not bad because mm-hmm. you can't keep going straight up all the time because mm-hmm. things get out of control. So yeah. it could be a bit of a correction. We could be due for that. Um, and you do have a trade-off. You can earn 4 or 5% just having your cash sit, sit still. That's an option. It's a viable mm-hmm. option. Mm-hmm. And what about Hong Kong stocks, Francis? It was looking quite good up until yeah. Monday, wasn't yeah. it? We hit a three-month peak on Monday. Yeah. Suddenly, July, things seem to have turned around, and it's all gone horribly wrong in the last couple of days. The Hang yeah. Seng slumped 2.5% Wednesday, down again yesterday. Um, were people getting too excited too soon? Uh, no, I think it's really the government officials. The bureaucrats just uh, cannot stop. Uh, trying to uh, control something, uh, they want to uh, uh, control the the times uh, teenagers spend on on the on their cell phones. I think that is really rubbish. Come on, <laughs> isn't that really? It's something not the government does. It's something parents do, isn't it? That's the role of parents. You, yeah, you don't need yeah, the government to do this. That's right. That's really the job of parents. But uh, you have an overly paternalistic bureau. Bureaucracy that are really trying to kill the the economy every step of the way. I think that is, that is a pretty sad situation for China, really. It, it sort of also highlights, doesn't it, that despite all this talk about helping private companies, supporting private companies, trying to let companies be more entrepreneurial, something always seems to come out of the blue that goes against it. We've seen it so many times over yeah. the last couple of years. Isn't this just a, the latest example that Beijing just can't help itself but to interfere when it should keep out of the way? Yeah, the Communist Party just think it should be in in every decision, every tiny things in the world. <laughs> I can be careful what I say. Now, I, I think, um, you know, look, you, have, you have a socialist policy, and that interferes with the capitalist policy, and, and capitalist markets, I guess. And, you know, you can't, it's, it's, it's a very tough balance to, to keep. Um, you know, it's funny, you talk about the, the kids and the teenagers on the phones, and it's a parent's responsibility. Well, you've got to get the parents off the phones, too. <laughs> um, so you know everyone's wed to their phones and it's i think it's it's you know that policy the way it, it's it's almost like you would say they shoot themselves in the foot this is what we're going to enact we're going to force companies to do something but the reality is they can send a better message and do it in a different way yeah and i think educate people a little bit differently rather than just punish companies um essentially that's what you're doing because you have to embed code you have to hire people you have to police yourself you have regulatory risk um it becomes more difficult to do business when you have these these um, basically rules in place. Mm. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that in this day and age, a smartphone is an essential item. You have to have one, don't you? Because um, you, you couldn't do your daily life um, without one because you pay your bills by smartphone, you connect with your friends on your smartphone, business contacts, you send emails. It's become a must-have item. So it's very hard to say to people, you can't use your smartphone, can't check your smartphone, whatever age you are. Yeah, and then the Chinese government used this to control everyone in everyday lives at every every step of the way, and that is the perfect tool for the for for the government. It is is much worse than 1984. Mm. But this is. I suppose also, what if you're a foreign investor and you're looking at the Chinese markets? 
you know, you've withdrawn a lot of funds from China this year. What you are hoping for is that there's going to be more support for private enterprises. You hear the right words, mm -hmm. but then you see something like this, and, and it makes <laughs> you think, well, nothing's really changed, has it? Private companies aren't going to be treated um, uh, that well, um, mm -hmm. and they're still going to come under pressure for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, but uh, at least uh, the the. Uh, one thing you can say about China is that the, chi the Chinese government is treating foreign companies much better than India. <laughs> well, yeah, the news from India today is also not good, is it? Like uh, banning the input of laptops and uh, electronic products. That's, that's crazy, surely. Yeah. See, my first reaction, you only saw the news this morning, was you know, there's a massive service industry in India that relies on technology from the West. And if you can't, you know, I, I know our firm for particular, you know, we, we're, we're security conscious. We, we have to be, we have to be, it's a requirement. All financial companies must have security policies in place. You have to worry about viruses, you have malware, and you have a certain standard around the world that you use. And if you're forced to use the local standard and you can't trust the, the, the um, well, it's not a matter of trust. It takes time to learn and, and adapt to new technology. Mm. I... I can see some of the move. Well, it's cheaper to do the business, let's say, in the Philippines. I, I think this is just a short-sighted mistake, and it's mm -hmm. something that could, uh, long-term, let's encourage some production in India, but there's not the way to do it. Mm. And, and the irony is companies were already increasing production in India anyway. We've seen that with Apple, with Foxconn, yeah. with other firms. They are already doing that. Well, they had, they had a, I mean, COVID was their, was their, was their boost. When the, when, the economy, when the world shut down and the supply chain shut down during COVID, you have to diversify, and that was a natural place to go. Um, I'm just, you just wonder how politics gets in the way of um, mm -hmm. common sense at times. Mm. And, and so coming to your point that as a financial services firm, if you've got to follow different standards in a country like India to elsewhere, there's only one or two, one or two, of two possibilities. And either you ring fence all your IT technology in India from everything else, which is obviously not good for a global firm, or you pull out. <laughs> yeah, it, it's tough, and and, and it's, it's a you know, I, I think the the cost of security and data security, p private, um, you know, the PII, the private data, and maintaining that, and all the different regulations around the world is just increasing. It, it, it's already addressed. It's a, it's incredibly high cost already, and it's just getting worse and worse. And that it's just a hidden cost that somehow has to come out. Who's going to pay for it? In the end, it's going to be the consumer and the governments and the economies. Mm -hmm. and, and you wonder why that's not taken into account when these decisions are made. It's sort of, you know, <laughs> you, you sort of have to question the process by which this is, this is done because it sort of comes suddenly out of the blue. It's quite a big shock, I think, for a lot of, a lot of firms. Well, I think it's really ultra-nationalism in India, in the uh, B BJP party, that is really a fault. Mm. They, they, have, they have shown time and time again they are an intolerant party. And I mean, I know they have this make in India policy. They want yeah. to expand domestic production. Um, but you have to question, is this the way to do it? Particularly when it was <laughs> happening anyway, for foreign firms were increasing production mm -hmm. um, in, in India. So now what do firms like Apple and Samsung and Dell go and do now? 
I don't know. I I I think、uh, you have to build up the supply chain and the infrastructure before you can enforce the、uh, local content rule, like you have in the in China.、Uh, it took China twenty years or something like that to build that.、Mm. Uh, it it doesn't. It won't happen in India just overnight. It, you just cannot do it. Mm. And but even China, you know, as much as it was developing, you know, over the last couple of decades, its own、mm. manufacturing infrastructure, it never went as far as banning imports、never. of you know of laptops and computers and and things like that,、mm-hmm. smartphones if they weren't made in、uh, made in China. <laughs> well, you know, I, as you think about, it, they don't like the semiconductor business. How much how much is made in India? So it's going to probably end up being built. Everywhere else in the world, assembled in India,、mm. and have the Made in India stamp on it. And you、mm. lift under the hood, and you see Made everywhere else. And the parts are actually done in Vietnam and、uh, China or, or wherever. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Is is part of this also though? Maybe、um, to try and reduce dependency on China. Is that part of the issue? While India is、uh, is doing this, because as you say, if you look at、um, the manufacturing, a lot of the parts do come from China, and we know there's tensions as well between India and China. Yeah, maybe they're sending a message, and maybe that was the politics behind it. But end of the day, as you said, it was already happening. It's a natural. It's just a. Na- it was naturally happening. It was. Gr- it's growing really fast. They have、um, great technologists in India, as they do in China and elsewhere. But why do why put a roadblock? Yeah, <laughs> when you don't need it. Yeah, I, I think we all agree, don't we? This this really doesn't、uh, doesn't make sense. Let me just get a quick comment from you both on the data we've had out of China this week. We've had all the PMI data now, haven't we? Manufacturing in recession, without a question of a doubt.、Mm-hmm. Services sector holding up, but slowing. It seems is is that the message? Yeah, I think so. I I I think the manufacturing sector, especially export sectors, really hurt by the decline in demand from、uh, out across the globe. You see the, these figures in Apple reporting one、uh, percent fall in sales. I think uh, uh, China must uh, uh, get the growth from somewhere else. Certainly not from the real estate. Then they really have to get people to spend. But、uh, if you're not Uh, giving pe-、uh, people free money. What what else can you do? I don't know. <laughs> Not an economist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in China, I mean, there's plenty of cash around. The savings、mm-hmm. just keep increasing, and they're just not spending. So that's a psychological thing, and I think that takes time to get out of. And, and look, the property market's taken a massive hit, or it's just been oversaturated. So that takes time to get out of. And then it's the wealth effect. If you feel wealthy, you're, you're going to spend.、Mm-hmm. And I think they don't see an opportunity, or they don't see the same future. And that's just psychological. And I think that will take a bit more time. Yeah, you got to remember this. We're still getting out of the effects of COVID. They've been locked down, so it takes a while to change that mentality.、Mm. I, I suppose then the the priority for the Chinese government is it's got to come up with some policies to make sure that the services sector, first of all, doesn't also fall into contraction because then、mm-hmm. the whole economy is really sinking, isn't it? And to make、mm-hmm. sure that the economy doesn't fall into deflation, which would be disastrous for China. Yeah. Yeah, but now we 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 only have slogans, something like twenty one and twenty six, and how many?、Uh, I've lost count. Thirty one <laughs> point plan, I think it was. Or I've, I've lost count of how many points、yeah. there were. They they seem to be repeating themselves over and over again. I I, I don't see any concrete policies. 
Um, <laughs> that, that's exactly why I'm not a politician or or, or in government doing a con, you know being an economist. It, it's a, it's a tough nut to crack. But look, the world is we've always had cycles. This is nothing new, and we know when, when you're going through these crazy bull markets, you know at some point it's going to end. And when you're in inevitably in a recession or this downturn in the cycle. You know it's not going to be forever. Things turn around, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, we've got we've gotten kind of brainwashed over the last thirty years because the cycles have been so short, so mm-hmm. the downturns have been so quick. But um, I think we're returning possibly back to the norm. Okay. Well, thank you for your comments. Have a great weekend. Good to see you both. That was David Friedland, who is Managing Director for Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers, and our regular Friday guest, Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. <laughs> I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Australia. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. So we've had a, a raft of central bank decisions over the last couple of weeks. The Reserve Bank of Australia, they left their interest rates on hold, 4.1% for a second straight month. I can't work out, was that a surprise or not? Uh, somewhat of a surprise. I think the futures market uh, had priced a 30% chance um, of, so the market was thinking probably 70, 30 against. But the actual economists, there are a majority of economists who thought they would go 25 basis points. So in that sense, it was a surprise. It's only the third time since May of last year that they have not raised rates. Um, So in in that sense, uh, after the pause of the previous month, there was some expectation they might go 25. And I think what uh, the Reserve Bank indicated was, you know, they're starting to see signs that inflation is heading back towards the path, albeit over a longer trajectory. So uh, the market reacted um, somewhat um, positively to it, but um, nothing particularly um, uh, exciting for the markets to, to lean on going forward. Mm. If, if I rank the, cent- the main central banks around the world in terms of their effectiveness at getting on top of inflation and reaching their inflation targets, in, um, in Australia, um, inflation's around, um, around 6%, isn't it? Whereas in the yep. US, it's about 3%, but horribly in the UK, it's at 8%. So I suppose the RBA is in the middle of the range, isn't it, between the best and the worst in terms of getting on top of inflation? I think it's reasonable. I think Australia, you know, each country is unique in terms of its trajectory. I think the US has outperformed in relation to uh, the disinflationary impact of monetary policy and and the overall metrics. And maybe we're seeing US as lead in this particular battle around inflation and and, uh, countries like Australia and and maybe Canada and uh, UK to a lesser extent are following. So maybe there's a lag that we'll start to see that emerge across... um, uh, you know some of the some of the smaller uh, uh, leading economies in the world. So um, at this stage, you're right. I think Australia is probably um, uh, looking at a trajectory of two to three percent on inflation out to 2025. So even if we don't see any more rate hikes uh, in the coming months, um, the chances of of lower rates over the over the next six to twelve months is probably minimal, given that we expect that inflation will be sticky. Uh, here in Australia and possibly around the world. Yeah, so what, 6% at the moment, isn't it? 3%, uh, three times the Reserve Bank of Australia's target. So sounds like the RBA has still got some work to do and also a new governor coming in in, uh, what, in September? Yeah, so this will be interesting because the last meeting for Philip Lowe, who's a much maligned uh, Reserve Bank governor, somewhat unfairly, 
um, you know, has been uh, somewhat the scapegoat of the in- uh, rate increases that have happened over the last 12 or so months. Um, his last meeting is the next one. Uh, and then um, Michelle Bullock takes over. Uh, so there is some conjecture that he'll throw one in as his parting gift, if you will, and uh, to somewhat insulate the new governor from having to do it. Um, what are they looking at? They're looking at household spending. They're looking at the, the labour market. Household spending through retail sales yesterday and through the services PMI would indicate that there is some softening. Mm-hmm. So retail sales fell at 0.8%. The PMI on the services side was sub 50 um, so they're like lead indicators that would suggest that there's definitely some softening happening. Having said that, the labour market is still tight. Um, credit hasn't come off as dramatically. Delinquencies aren't, um, you know, as, uh, as expected. And unit labour costs are still quite high. So those things are keeping the, the Reserve Bank from saying they've declared some level of victory over inflation. And um, I think that's consistent with what we're seeing around Europe and, uh, and, and in the US as well. Are these high rates, are there signs now that they are starting to have um, an impact on the economy? I noticed the, uh, the services PMI, it fell into contraction in July, the, the PMI reading 47.9, whereas it was 50, 50.3 in June. Should we take this as a sign that these rates, high rates are starting to bite yeah, well, you know, we know that there's a lag effect on the interest rates. So, uh, and we know that the services PMI and and household spending uh, are lead indicators, or at at, at minimum coincident in, in indicators. So, yeah, I would say that that's now we're starting to see some. It's not as dramatic, and one of the things that's concerning the Reserve Bank is that household pri- house prices are still going up. And this probably more of a demand supply construct, you know, little supply coming to the market and still some demand. So there is a couple of anomalies around um, that. And of course, the labour market's still pretty tight and there's still pressure from an organised labour movement, uh, particularly driven by a labour government here to, to keep putting wages up. Um, so there's some element of concern around the ability for the Reserve Bank to influence prices through wages because of government intervention. And those things will be factors that may lead the Reserve Bank to have to go again in the coming months. Okay, let me turn our attention to the markets. Um, Maybe the biggest event of the week was also a surprising one. Fitch's downgrade of the US. Janet Yellen says it's puzzling and unwarranted. Is it that puzzling and unwarranted? I think she was the most polite uh, commentator. in regards to the Fitch downgrade, you know, if you've, if you've read some of the other comments from people like uh, the Jamie Dimon and, and Warren Buffett and others, uh, they were a little bit more colourful in their language um, to say that it was very much inconsequential, um, the Fitch uh, downgrade. Having said that, um, clearly in the bond market, it's been very much noticed. Mm. Um, and the curve, Stephen, with the bond yields at the 10-year up about 22 to 25 basis points this week. Now, that adds cost, and that actually has a downstream impact on earnings yield on equities. So you've seen the reaction, regardless of whether you think it's the right thing or the right timing. Definitely had a market reaction. Mm, this it's probably is... what it reflects. Yeah, sorry, Peter, yes. Sorry, I was going to say it's a significant move, isn't it, in the bond markets? The 10-year now well above 4%, 4.20% it's trading at at the moment. It seems now to be basically that's 4% has now become the floor, whereas for the last, what, 15 years since the global financial crisis, it's been a ceiling. Well, I think that's, that'll be the interesting thing because we're back at the highs of November last year when inflation was at 7%. 
uh, on bond yields and uh, and if you look at the charts it's sort of broken back through so that to your point i think it becomes much more of a floor around that four percent you know canadian bonds at the 10-year hit a 15-year high um at 3.7 um there, there is an impact uh, across the globe when us uh, downgrade because it adds to the cost of debt um it does reflect the fiscal deterioration in the us economy and the higher government debt issuance that's going to be there to fund the, uh, fund, uh, the deficit. Uh, and that was reflected in Treasury announcing an increase in its issuance um, this week. Um, but other than that, it's not that much of an impact. Uh, so the market sort of reacted. It's mainly felt in bonds because that's the debt uh, cost. And I think the market was probably on the equity side heading into a little bit of a, a pullback uh, a scenario. So it's sort of combined to be the trigger um, to you know, get investors to sell uh, on the equity market more than probably we thought they may. Have we got to now rethink how we value the equity market? Because we've been used to over a decade now for, for low bond yields, haven't we? And that's really helped propel um, stocks higher. Um, you know, we were wondering about what the shock could be for the second half of the year, um, sort of when it when it started. Maybe the shock is people are going to focus a lot more on deficits and on, on deficit financing. How is this all going to be paid for? Which has always been there in the background, hasn't it? But markets have never really thought about it that much. Do you think now this Fitch downgrade is going to put a lot more focus on debt and deficits? I think when you, you look at the, the earnings results coming out in the second quarter for corporates, they've been pretty good. So right now, you know, the equities have, have done okay and have been backed up a little bit by fairly good earnings overall, you know, earnings beats across the across the sectors. Mm. Having said that, most of the forward indicators or most of the forward uh, um, estimates are showing um, that there will be a, you know, a reduction in activity in the third and fourth quarter of this year. Now, when that starts to happen and starts to feed through, that impacts the pricing valuation of the shares, which also include the level of the bond rate uh, in terms of an earnings yield. So on that basis, yes. Um, once you start to see the impact of actual lower activity feeding through to sales, feeding through to revenue numbers, um, and then you you put in that to a valuation model, which includes the earnings yield, which is priced off the 10-year bond rate, then you're going to potentially see much more of a focus on um, the level of debt and uh, the fiscal uh, side of the equation. Mm. But we've still got so far for the second quarter, um, companies still reporting a good set of earnings. We saw after the Bell Apple um, reported a, a decent uh, set of earnings and showing how much it relies on China. Interestingly, US debt has now got the same rating as, uh, as Apple, which is sort of a bit odd, isn't it? <laughs> it is interesting. Uh, Apple did note that they'll see lighter third quarter revenue, right? So uh, the stock was down 2% after, even though on the beat, on the earnings. Uh, Amazon had good results as well. Uh, that was a very strong beat and they did well. So if you look overall, I don't know the exact percentage, but it was in the high order of two thirds of companies that have reported a beat earnings estimates in the second quarter. Um, so the economy still tagged along quite nicely. Equity prices have reflected that. Um, but uh, forward estimates would indicate that it's going to soften in the back half of this year. How much, we don't know. And that'll impact a couple of things. It'll impact uh, equity markets directly, and that'll also impact what the Fed considers necessary 
um, to do on interest rates. So I'm wondering where we go from here, because we saw in the first half of the year, but certainly at the end of it, most of the bears have come off the sidelines now, haven't they? They were, they were chasing this momentum, the, the fear of uh, missing out, as it's called. So most of the, the players are all in now, the, the markets, just as suddenly uh, bond yields are sort of surging higher. We saw the VIX uh, jump a few points uh, this week as well, and, and implied volatility on put options has also jumped as well, because they were almost historic low um, sort of levels. So there seems to be a bit of a turning point going on. Yeah, well, I think the VIX was up like 15%. Uh, Yes, it was a big move after the Fitch uh, uh, announcement. But I actually think it was, yeah, it was was heading towards some sort of trigger. So this was almost like the Fitch thing was just the reason um, to reestablish some some long vol play. Um, And that's reflected in the options markets. I think the the market got you know I think the market was in the second quarter probably a lot of the trading market was short weren't long into the market got caught got dragged in uh, so as you say it runs in on it now now it uh, re- reverts back to fundamentals the fundamentals are starting to look a little expensive um, you know people start to take a little risk off the table start to to hedge a little bit more so that's what we're seeing and it's not surprising coming out of the the northern summer too and we'll probably see that accelerate in September which is pretty normal. Um, post-August summer month. I'm wondering where we stand now on this uh, on, on the recession uh, forecast. At the beginning of the year, a lot of economists were forecasting the US was going to fall into a recession. It was just a question of how long, how deep it was going to be. And then by the end of the first half of the year, that completely reversed. You know, even the Fed's own economists were saying, no, they're not forecasting a recession anymore. There's going to be a soft landing. But I'm wondering if this surge in bond yields could be the thing uh, that tips uh, the US economy actually into a recession. A bit early to say, Pete, uh, but it could um, if it gets a little um, out of control and, get, and volatility continues to rise. Right now, I would say that's probably too far too premature to suggest, but it's, a, it's something to look out for. You know, the Goldilocks scenario is still sort of playing out. You know, um, let's have a look at the non-farm payroll numbers tonight uh, to see if there's any softening in the labour market. I think the jobless claims were a little softer uh, last night, but overall the labour market stays tight, um, even though we're seeing some 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 job uh, degradation. So that's a that's a big factor that's that's driving sentiment that people aren't necessarily losing jobs. I think one of the bigger topics going forward will be labour productivity, not necessarily labour market numbers. And uh, you know, uh, one of the things that's concerning here in Australia is that the level of productivity is not rising. Um, and uh, this in effectively increases unit labour costs and keeps inflation high, which is a dilemma for the Reserve Bank. And I think it probably could be indicative of what's happening in other, other, other economies around the world. Okay, Toby. Well, thanks very much for your thoughts there. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening this morning and for and for also this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Providing a view from mainland China will be Yan'an Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group. Have a great weekend. Money Talk.